0: From economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces in metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, Teed Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project. CertainTeed Architectural will manage the details so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of
1: ceiling and wall design. And so if your acoustical consultant is making it sound like you couldn't possibly know, I'm here to tell you, you could possibly know, like it's really actually not that hard. And the reason it's so important for you to do it yourself as the architect is because you're making those decisions at the beginning. And so you're putting one set of doors in when really there should be a vestibule, but you're not thinking about that. And so there's a there's a lobby outside and there's a black box theater inside, and and then you bring it to the acoustical consultant and say, now make them separate. And most of this noise is going to come through the door.
0: I'm Paul McCloskey, Editor-in-Chief at Architect Magazine. And
2: I'm Madeline D'Angelo, Associate Editor at Architect.
0: In this first episode, as part of a two-part series, we'll be looking at the architecture of sound. Madeline, what did you find in your research?
2: So I started poking around, and I noticed that I like to think of sound as a naturally occurring thing all around us. You know, you hear the wind blowing through the trees, the birds, that kind of stuff. But that wasn't always the case. Take, for example, electric cars. They're kind of everywhere now. You hear them more and more, and to me, they sound a bit like UFOs humming. And so as I was looking, I noticed that in 2019, in the United States, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration required that all hybrid and electric vehicles emit a kind of artificial noise by September 2020. And now they have to admit that sound up to a slightly faster speed of 18.6 miles per hour. So it sounds even a little bit stranger. Take a listen. This is the manufactured sound of the new Ford Mustang's electric SUVs. Sounds kind of strange, right?
0: Yes, weird.
2: And so as I was looking around a little bit more, another sound story caught my attention. In 2015, the NFL's Atlanta Falcons pumped this kind of fake crowd noise into their stadium sound system. So we had all this fake clapping, fake cheering, but it sounded great at the time. But once the news got out, the team was later fined $350,000 and then they were stripped of a fifth round draft choice the following year.
0: What's funny about that is because of COVID-19 during opening season last fall, because the Falcons stadium was empty of fans due to COVID precautions, The Falcons were all of a sudden allowed to pump in fake crowd noise. It's funny. There are times when we have too much sound. We can think of it as noise. And then there are times when you have sounds that are soothing.
2: Yes, exactly. It makes me think about the apps that I have where I can play the sounds of fake rain or even white noise. And it kind of puts me to sleep immediately.
0: We invited two experts on sound to help us understand better the architecture of sound. The first is Michael Ehrman, AIA, a professor at Virginia Tech's School of Architecture, where he teaches design studio, environmental building systems, and both teaches and researches architectural acoustics. He's also the author of the excellent award-winning book, Architectural Acoustics Illustrated, which translates the discipline of acoustics into the graphic language of architecture.
2: And our second speaker is Stephen Udolph the National Sales Manager for Certainty Architectural, covering a wide range of standard and custom product collections in felt, wood, metal, fiberglass, and more. Steve has spent his entire career in the interior specialties business, putting his dual degrees in marketing and management information systems to work in a field that thrives on design, messaging, and technology.
0: Welcome to the show, Michael and Steve. Michael, can you talk about yourself and where you come from in terms of the field of architectural acoustics?
1: Sure, Paul. I'm I'm an architecture professor at Virginia Tech. I've been here 21 years and I I teach design studio and I teach a, a sequence on environmental building systems and I teach and research in architectural acoustics. I also teach practicing architects to prepare for their licensure exam through something called the Amber Book. Great.
0: You've also done some research on this bubble house. What's that about?
1: I've also been very interested in lighting and daylighting and specifically the inverse relationship of daylighting and thermal resistance. So basically if you want insulation, generally you're talking about something that's opaque. And if you want something that provides daylight, generally you're talking about uh, something that has very little by way of thermal value. And I started looking into, and then the idea of using layers of bubble wrap as a way to bring in simultaneously, bring in light and, and keep in heat. And no one would let me put it on their building. So I put it on my house. So I have a, I have a bubble wrap house and, and that, like your book, also won some awards, right? An AIA award, I think? The Bubble Wrap House won an International Architizer A-plus award. It won uh, an AIA award. We're also joined by Stephen Udolph.
0: He's the National Sales Manager at, uh, for Certainty Architectural, which covers a wide range of standard and custom product collections in everything from felt, wood, metal, fiberglass, and more. Stephen, how did you get into the architecture of sound?
3: It just kind of by happenstance, my first job out of school was with Tectum, and I spent 15 years with them, and they're an acoustical product used mainly in schools, gymnasiums, some types of sound studios, things like that to absorb sound, but also it's an abuse-resistant panel. And I then moved into more of a architectural specialties role with a, with a new company with, with Hunter Douglas, who was then acquired by CertainTeed and Certain Teed Architectural now has all different types of materials. So between metal and wood um, and fiberglass, we have a lot of different acoustical options where basically we absorb sound. So we don't stop sound, but we absorb sound. And so I probably, I guess I'm going on 21 years in that type of acoustical field.
0: Great. By the way, I'm joined by Madeline D'Angelo. She's the Associate Editor at Architecture Magazine. Madeline, how do you think about sound?
2: I think about sound constantly. I mean, I grew up sleeping next to a window that was right on a busy road.
0: Let's get started with the basics of how do we look at the architecture of sound? How should architects and interior designers think about sound? Maybe we'll start about designing for sound. We'll start with Michael.
1: I think architects are frankly really well positioned to think about sound because Sound is best thought of in three dimensions, and three dimensions in two different ways. So three dimensions in terms of not just reading plan and section and, and elevation, but sound, of course, moves in all kinds of oblique directions. And I found, because I worked for years for an acoustical consultant, and I'm a licensed architect myself, I think the architects are uniquely um, positioned to understand how sound moves in real space, in real three-dimensional space, and you know, when it's moving obliquely and not you know, parallel to a, to a plan or to a section. But also because uh, sound at any given time really has three things going on: it's sound level, so it's like how loud is a sound; it's sound frequency, so how high pitched or low pitched is the sound; and it's got this time domain where sound is literally moving around a room. And so, anytime that we we make you know in, within architectural acoustics, almost anytime we make graphs, we make graphs with two of the three. So we'll do uh, time and sound level, or we'll do frequency and sound level or frequency and time. But I think that architects uh, and really anyone who can think three-dimensionally can also transfer that into being able to think about all three of those things at the same time.
0: How and when in a project should we be thinking
1: about acoustics? So glad you asked that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the message to architects, if there was one message to architects, that would be the banner headline. Uh, that would be the one that you put on the back of the airplane and fly above the AIA conference. As an architect and as an acoustical consultant, it is Wildly frustrating to me that, and by the way, completely understandable that the acoustical consultant is brought in after the project is designed. And then it's like, okay, now make this quiet or make this sound right. And there is so much more impact that can be accomplished if we start at the beginning. I mean, just, I mean, and at, at no extra cost and way more effectiveness. So, for instance, if we have a long bar building, like it's a building that just has room after room, just to kind of picture that, close your eyes and picture that if we need to put in that bar building uh, a mechanical room and a concert hall and a lobby and a corridor and a bathroom, we can put them in any order. And at the very beginning, if we put them in the order that it's mechanical room, concert hall, corridor, lobby, bathroom, then the mechanical room is next to the concert hall. And there's almost nothing you can do after that to make it as good as it would have been if you had make it as quiet as it would have been if you had uh, instead done concert hall, corridor, lobby, bathroom, then mechanical room, because the mechanical room would be on the other end. You were not paying any more in ducks. You're still running ducks along the whole building. But now you've, by just space planning with, for instance, noise in mind, and this kind of thing applies to vestibules. It applies to how you can orient to the street. If there's buses going by, like Madeline was talking about, it applies to the size of heights of ceilings when it comes to especially spaces for unamplified music performance. If there is a way to get into the world of acoustics at the beginning, mm-hmm. even briefly, I think that will down to the benefit of the world.
0: Stephen, what are you seeing? Because you're really looking at the whole landscape and different firms doing different types of spaces.
3: I think one of the things that I've seen in the last 20 years is the education of the architects when it comes to sound and when it comes to noise absorption and things like that it's really grown over the years. I think 20 years ago, it probably wasn't taught nearly like it's being taught now. And so because of that, I think the architects have a really good basis of how they need to kind of attack a project to stop sound or to absorb sound, depending on what, whatever the space requires. From our standpoint, what we're going to do is we're going to provide products that allow them to do that. So Michael was talking about the three different factors in in, as you're designing with sound, we're going to provide the different noise absorption factors at the different frequencies, and then the overall noise absorption of a product so that an architect can easily choose, hey, this is exactly what I needed to put into my space to achieve what what needs to be achieved for that particular space. Now, from a sound stopping standpoint, we don't really get into sound stopping. That's very, very hard to do. Really takes some specialized products. From sound absorption standpoint, we see that a lot and that's the basics of just taking the echo out of a space. When you have a lot of hard, hard surfaces in a space, you're gonna get a lot of echo. And what you've gotta do is you've gotta kind of knock that echo down and absorb that sound so it doesn't bounce around because it takes time to dissipate. And the, the goal is to reduce that time and dissipate that sound quicker, makes the space a lot more audible.
2: From economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces in metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, CertainTeed Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project. CertainTeed Architectural will manage the details so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of ceiling and wall design. And now back to the show.
0: Michael, in your book, you talked about active acoustics and passive acoustics. How does that come into play as architects and interior designers are designing
1: spaces? Generally, the world of architecture, the ways that we as architects think about sound is generally under the umbrella of passive acoustics. So we're talking about things that don't require amplification. Now, certainly there's lots of amplification within our spaces. But that's usually a little bit beyond the the kind of the horizon for the architect. So we're talking about things like room acoustics. I'm in a recording studio sound booth right now. Uh, And part of the reason I'm in a sound booth is I did a podcast some years ago, interview, and I was lazy and didn't book the sound booth here at the university and the library. And I just did it in my house figuring it would be okay. And when I listened to it, it was atrocious. I mean, uh, you could barely even understand what I was saying. It sounded like I was talking from a racquetball court. And so for a normal person, that would not be a big deal. But for me, it was really embarrassing because I'm the acoustician. (laughs) So when we talk about room acoustics, we're talking about that. Does it sound like a racquetball court or a cathedral? Does it sound like a recording studio or a living room? And generally, we're talking about situations like classrooms or concert halls where the source and the receiver are in the same room. And I think that's what probably captures the attention and the imagination of architects the most. Now, in terms of what occupants complain about the most, frankly, is probably mechanical noise. So probably something like 40 or 50% of the issues that people have, maybe even 60 or 70% are mechanical noise. And most of them are from fan noise uh, from the air handling unit. So that's that's mechanical noise control. And that's kind of a separate thing. But that's still very much in the realm of, of passive noise control. And then, of course, there's environmental noise and speech privacy and speech security. Speech privacy is so, you, you know, you, everyone's screaming and in an office or something and it's maybe a little bit distracting. Speech security is if you're having a sensitive conversation because you're the ambassador of whatever hotspot country and you're talking to your enemy's ambassador and you want to make sure that the people outside can't hear. And then of course there's the active side, which is for the most part loudspeakers. So then what are architects and interior
0: designers then really facing in terms of the materials that they should be thinking about? You have Things like glass, porcelain, carpet, hard surfaces, soft surfaces. How do you deal with the complexity of choice of materials that you're bringing into a space?
1: There's maybe a misconception that we always want to have less reverberance. So a shorter reverberation time, a drier room. And it's true, we almost always do. So in most cases, in the case of amplified speech, amplified music, or spoken word speech, unamplified, we generally want a space more like this recording studio I'm in. We want spaces that don't have a lot of long lingering sound. But it's also true that in spaces for unamplified music, which is certainly not the majority of our spaces, we generally want spaces that have a longer reverberation time. We actually like the sound, uh, the notes to kind of meld together and merge into one to the other. And so it's not always a matter of reducing your reverberance. Sometimes what you want to do is you want to right size your reverberance for whatever the application of the particular occupant is. Now, within that, if you kind of take your hand, like, you know, I don't know if it'll pick up in the microphone, but I just took my hands and I put them over top of my mouth and you can hear me more clearly and more loudly. And so we can do that with our rooms too. So it's not just about the average way that sound decays in a room, but we can think about the geometry in a room. And if we know where the source is, so say it's a classroom and we know more or less where the teacher's likely to be, and we know more or less where the students are likely to be, we can position sound absorbing materials so that they're generally on the receiving part of the room. And that does like a whole bunch of great things for us. First of all, that allows for that kind of, again, that that idea that the, the source is, I just cupped my hands around my mouth. The idea that the source, we can give beneficial early reflections. So it's good to have reflections off surfaces if they arrive early enough relative to when the direct sound arrives. So if, Paul, you're sitting there across the room from me and we're in a classroom, and at some point after I make a sound, that sound will reach you. And then there'll be reflections. And some of those reflections will hit off the surfaces that are between me and you and kind of near me. And generally, those reflections come not very long after the direct sound, if you can kind of picture it in your mind, the ones that are reaching you that have reflected off say the sidewall or the ceiling, those are generally beneficial. They add to a sense of loudness, to clarity, to a sense of envelopment. If it's music, your sense of kind of being in the same space as the people who are performing. But then on the flip side, we need a certain amount of absorptance so that if I say the word syllable, the syllable sill is not still lingering in the room and muddling up the rest of the sentence. And so we can put that absorption, it's often put on the ceiling, but it by no means has to be. And we can put that absorption on the receiving end, and then we can right-size our reverberation time. And so we've, on the one hand, we've increased our early reflections, that's good. We've right-sized our reverberation time, that's good. Now the third benefit is the most common room acoustics defect is an echo off the back wall. And so if we've put sound absorbing material off on the rear wall, by putting absorption generally on the on the receiving end, uh, we've often done that as well. Of course, uh, these are general rules, and and they don't they don't apply everywhere. But this is a good place for the architects to kind of start from.
0: Steven, what are you seeing in terms of how architects and designers are thinking about the different use of materials?
3: First of all, it comes down to the to what space you're designing, right? Let's say you're designing a, a gymnasium. You're going to have a lot going on in that gymnasium. Right. Let's just take a an example of a basketball game, a high school basketball game. You've got the basketball game going, and you've got the cheerleaders at one end, and you've got a band at one end, and you've got the fans, and you want to be able to hear that all. You don't want just jumbled noise, but it doesn't have to be done in a specifically fancy or sexy way, right? It can be done with wall panels, be it fiberglass panels or absorbative wood panels or, or something that absorbs sound and, and, and knocks that echo down in the space. When it comes to, let's say a restaurant, you may want to, you, you want to delve into probably more expensive materials. And so you're going to have to look at how you, your sound absorption a little bit differently. And then it may depend on what restaurant you're dealing with, right? If it's a, a very nice, fancy restaurant, they may want to really knock that sound down so you can sit across the, the room from somebody and have a, a or the table from somebody and have a very nice conversation. There's other restaurants that want quick turnaround that don't want that. They want a higher reverberation because they don't want you to sit there and linger in their restaurant. They want to get you in and move you through. That will drive what type of material you're actually looking at. And when you get into other spaces, let's just say bigger spaces, let's say airport terminals and things like that, where you don't want it to be an echo chamber, but you don't specifically need a high amount of absorption. You can choose materials that have okay absorption, but also look really, really nice. So it just depends on the space, I think.
0: And now we're seeing a lot of spaces are designed even more, let's say, thoughtfully. We're starting to see the integration of lighting, for example, or even mixing materials. Stephen, how do you see that playing out?
3: Well, lighting is not going to really affect the acoustics that much, but the mix of materials is really interesting because you have different materials that absorb differently on, on the scale, so at different types of hertz. So for example, felt will absorb really, really well on the high end of the spectrum, the louder, higher pitch noises, but not as well on the lower pitch noise whereas metal oftentimes will absorb very very well on the lower end but tail off the 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 sound absorption coefficients tail off towards the higher end so you really need to look at the space that you're designing if it's a band room you may want all types of different material in there to absorb across the entire spectrum so so that you get a more clear sound in a theater that may change a little bit again it, it really depends on the space and what you're trying to achieve and then the honest truth is it can depend on the shape of the space. Okay. That can make a big difference. You've got to look at your overall design as you're designing it. And, and that really will base the materials that you put in there. Then it comes down to choosing the, the look of the material and the finish of the material, but oftentimes that won't change the absorption.
0: Where are we in terms of advances in acoustics and the latest research, Steven
3: I think the education of the architectural community has changed over the last 20 years. I think it's much better now than it certainly was before. From a material standpoint, we're still providing the same material that we were providing 25 years ago with the same absorption that was provided 25 years ago. It's just being used smarter. And I think designers specifically are using it in a more creative way. But from a technology standpoint, I'm not sure there's been a lot of advances from a material standpoint. There's been changes in material based upon trends. I mentioned felt earlier. I probably went 15 years without ever seeing felt being designed into a space. Now I'm seeing felt designed into almost every space that we work on. That definitely is going to change some of the sound absorption in the room and how we look at the sound absorption in a room. Some of the materials and the trends have changed, but the actual technology of the noise absorption it's staying fairly the same. It's just, how is it being used? And I think it's being used a lot smarter now.
2: Michael, have you also noticed an increased awareness of architects regarding sound?
1: It's hard for me to know because I'm the one responsible for teaching it. And so what Steve said was music to my ears. And I don't think that's a coincidence at all that that's when I started teaching. I think that must be why (laughs) I have always noticed there is a pretty consistent and genuine and really thorough kind of thirst for tell me how this works. I think the architects are aware what they don't know about sound, whereas maybe they're not aware what they don't know about something like daylighting as much. I'm going to probably piss off a bunch of the acoustical consulting community. But if you're an architect and you have an acoustical consultant who's making you feel like you couldn't possibly understand this stuff, it's way too complicated for you then you need to get a different acoustical consultant because that is a way that they either justify their high fees because this kind of world of architectural acoustics is very much something that architects can understand at the kind of basic level to to the point where maybe 75% or 80% of their projects, they can eliminate most of the problems themselves. I don't think anyone should design a school or a concert hall without an acoustical consultant, but there are many things that architects can do and can learn. And so if your acoustical consultant is making it sound like you couldn't possibly know, I'm here to tell you you could possibly know. Like it's really actually not that hard. And the reason it's so important for you to do it yourself as the architect is because you're making those decisions at the beginning. And so you're putting one set of doors in when really there should be a vestibule, but you're not thinking about that. And so there's a there's a lobby outside and there's a black box theater inside and And then you bring it to the acoustical consultant and say, now make them separate. And most of this noise is going to come through the door. So the acoustical consultant will say, well, let's add a vestibule in here. Let's add two sets of doors. It's way better than one. And the architect will say, no, we can't do that. It's already fixed. And so if it was just a few months earlier, that would have been an easy fix. So I get it too. None of us wants to hand over control of a project we're designing to the acoustician. So that's the other thing is probably hire an acoustician who not only it will help you get better so you can make your next building better, but also one who understands architecture and is sympathetic to design. I think that's probably pretty important and under-talked about as well.
3: Well, and as a manufacturer, we used to actually literally provide basic reverberation calculations. So if you, as a designer said, hey, we want, and we always say about one and a half seconds. I don't know if that's changed over time. This was a little while ago, but You could give me the length, width, and height of your space, the materials that you have, and we could say at this NRC, you have to put this much square footage of a product into that space to get to that time absorption. So manufacturers, what what I would say is we can provide basics to help out the designer. We are not going to get as detailed, certainly as an acoustical consultant, but we can get you close with simple mathematical formulas.
0: Michael, you're doing research still at Virginia Tech. So what kind of research are you doing in terms of acoustics?
1: Yeah, I mean, Paul, it's, it's funny that generally the three best concert halls in terms of what acousticians regard as the three best concert halls in, in use today are in Boston and Amsterdam and Vienna. And one was built, I think, in the 1880s, one in the in 1890s, and one in the 1910s. And so what other scientific field? has its greatest accomplishments, a century old. To Steve's point, acoustics is very much a mature field. You know, this isn't CRISPR technology and gene editing. This is stuff that we've kind of known about for a while. We are looking at some different materials. I actually had someone the other day ask me if I would help them research the acoustical absorption of mycelium. I don't totally understand what mycelium is. We've done some research in porous concrete. We've done some research in terms of the sound absorption of polycarbonate. We as architects and acousticians talk about the acoustics of a room, like the reverberation time or the sound level. I've been really interested in looking at how that varies around a room. I've looked at mapping things like reverberation time and mapping things like mechanical noise in a room. I was curious, how far away from the mechanical, how far away from the, the duct basically, or the fan coil unit, does a student have to sit in a classroom before he can hear the teacher. If you have a noisy mechanical system and you're right next to the mechanical system as a kid, which is always in the back of the room, the teachers on the other side of the room, you often can't hear the teacher, but you can't hear every word. I was curious about how far away does, does one have to be? And so when we talk about the noise level in the room, I'm kind of interested in mapping the room and that has to do with my background as an, as an architect and kind of an interest in the spatial and the haptic. And then there's a pretty specific kind of concert hall called a coupled volume concert hall, but that we can do a whole podcast on that one. That's a whole nother kind of uh, very specific application that I've been researching as well.
2: And that's all we have for today.
0: Thank you for listening. Visit architectmagazine.com to see more of our coverage and to hear more from the architect podcast network.